The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In the summer of 1863, Robert E. Lee of the Army of Northern Virginia invaded Maryland and Pennsylvania only to meet defeat at the Battle of Gettysburg. In the aftermath of the battle, Lee extricated his army and returned to Virginia with most of his wounded, thousands of wagons full of supplies taken from northern farms, and tens of thousands of animals. Seen in that light, was the Gettysburg campaign really a Confederate victory? Kent Masterson Brown, author of Retreat from Gettysburg, Lee, Logistics, and the Pennsylvania Campaign, We'll have something to say about that tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building, as is often the case, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the university, not speaking for the city of Greenville or the state of North Carolina, no one but myself, and likewise, my guest will do the same, I'm sure, uh, as we talk about Civil War history tonight with a new show, our first show of the 12th season of Civil War Talk Radio, 
not something I would have expected when this got started uh, in 2005, but it's 2004, I should do the math, uh, but it's good to be back. Uh, when we last spoke in June of 2015, as we ended up the uh, 11th season, the Women's World Cup tournament was underway. I avoided talking about it much to avoid jinxing the United States, and that worked well as uh, we came out ahead there. And I will likewise avoid saying anything about my alma mater University of Michigan game coming up tomorrow night. Uh, we'll wait till next week before we say anything either way. Also, last time we spoke, I was sitting in a different office. The Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters has moved about 20 yards down the hall from the corner office of the department chair to the office nearest the elevator, formerly occupied by my colleague and friend Chuck Calhoun, who has been a guest on the show. Uh, Chuck is working on his book on the presidency of U.S. Grant at every spare second. Hopefully that'll be out in not too distant future. Uh, but Chuck is retired from the university. I've got his old office. I've got a view of the courtyard, the cement exercise yard is really what it looks like here at the Brewster building, uh, as opposed to the uh, the view of the other side across 10th Street where the marching band practices in the green field surrounded by trees. The view's not as good, but I will tell you the uh, relief of being able to focus on Civil War history and teaching students and not uh, the latest assessment rubric is uh, hard to express the uh, it makes me want to do it again just because it feels so good to stop. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be back in the the professoriate and out of administration for the first time in eight years and see if I can maintain that. Uh, there's always calls to serve on this committee or that the other thing, and I'm trying to do my best to keep away. Well, in the meantime, a lot also has happened in the real world uh, since. Uh, Civil War Talk Radio last took to the air back at the beginning of the summer. Uh, the most really surprising development of the, of the last several months, going back uh, before early summer, has been the, uh, the the sea change in how Americans, not not in the Civil War community, but the general public, who, who sort of know there was a war in North and South, uh, how those folks have come to look at the war and some of its symbolism. Uh, the Within the Civil War community, we've been talking about the causes of the war, and there's been a widespread consensus of the uh, painfully obvious fact that slavery was at the heart of the difference between the North and South. Uh, not that that made one side more moral than the other, but simply they had two different systems. And it's taken uh, 50 years since that became common uh, teaching knowledge for it to percolate through the general public and finally overtake the, the lost cause uh, rear guard that has held, uh, held its ground for so many decades in, in trying to uh, make the, the rather bizarre claim that slavery had nothing to do with it. It's tragic that it took a, a mass shooting uh, and a uh, extremist's use of the Confederate battle flag to tr 
trigger this, to, to, that's a bad word, to be the catalyst for this, uh, this, this change in public thought. But it's, it's long overdue, and, and now perhaps uh, when you and I are talking with other people about the Civil War, we can have the conversation on a more sophisticated plane and not have to deal with uh, some of the, the traditional baggage that has gone with it for so many years. But uh, if, if Civil War talk radio played any part in that or the books we read or if uh, you and I and anyone else talking with our friends uh, helped us get to that consummation, then we've done our job. Well, let's move on from that to this week's conversation. And it, I will say I'm delighted to be back here. Uh, I want to thank everyone who uh, sent emails over the summer uh, asking when the next live show would be. Uh, and there were a fair number of those. And I really appreciated it. Uh, obviously, the answer is here we are now. And actually, before we start, I should say what we have next week. Uh, John White, author of Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he will be our guest next week. And the following week, we'll have Kenneth A. Griffith's Seven Days in July, a historic account of the Battle of Atlanta, an unusual but very interesting book. Uh, so those in the next couple weeks, and we'll get, have plenty more going ahead. But you can find out by looking at impedimentsofwar.org, the website dedicated to Civil War Talk Radio. Mark Gaffney will keep you up to date. As soon as I get him up to date, I have to send him those names uh, shortly. And you can also use that to, uh, to uh, donate money to me. Always welcome through the PayPal button there. And you can go to the Impediments of War Facebook page as well, which gets a fair amount of traffic. We're on the verge of 600 likes. 600, that's one-tenth of one-hundredth of a percent of what a real celebrity would get, but let's I'm happy with it. So uh, feel free to visit the page and like it. Now to our guest today, Kent Masterson Brown is uh, an attorney, an author, a filmmaker, and uh, a long overdue guest on the show, someone whose work I've known about for many years and uh, finally uh, able to to get us connected this week. So I'm delighted that he's agreed to be here. Uh, Mr. Brown, are you there? Certainly am, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm delighted you, you could uh, join me. Uh, the it, it, as I mentioned in the uh, introduction, uh, you are uh, based on your website a, a lawyer in Lexington, Kentucky. Yes. The last show of the previous season back in June, our guest was uh, a lawyer who'd written a book about uh, John Surratt, one of the, the Booth conspirators. And uh, in my my pre-historian days, I practiced law before I decided to I earn saw an honor, honest living. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so what, what's with it? What, what are we all doing here talking about the Civil War? Uh, lawyers love to talk about the Civil War. I don't know how many lawyers have been writing Civil War history, but there are a lot of them. <laughs> it, do you think there's something in that? Uh, is it the release from the, uh, the day-to-day work and, and, and legal work? To, is there something? Uh, absolutely. Do, do we get something out of it? What, oh, absolutely. What, what, and you know, you know, Jerry, we, the lawyers use a very similar method as a historian. I mean, mm-hmm. when 
I, I mean, I spent the entire day putting together a complaint I'm filing uh, at 8.30 in the morning, um, and, and, to, and, and I'm asking for a temporary injunction in this case. And to do all the work I did to prepare for that, <clears throat> I had to go back through all the cases that have expounded on the issue I'm talking about in this matter mm-hmm. uh, that have been rendered before and try to tell a court that in the past, this is what courts have said about this matter. And it's not any different. I mean, we, we as writers and, his, and uh, historians... Uh, go through the same thing. We we go back and find what was said, what was done, and then try to relate that to what the circumstances were, and uh, and then tell the public what they were based upon all that. It's really not too different. And now, lawyers, of course, they want to start with a preset uh, idea of this is what we've got to do. And then they find their sources. Uh, but it's still not too different. We, we do much the same thing in, in history work. I, I think that's absolutely right. And you, you hit on the key difference, though, that the historian starts with a question and the lawyer starts with uh, an, an answer. answer. That, uh, <laughs> the answer he wants. <laughs> but a good lawyer does have to acknowledge contrary cases, have to distinguish them. Yes, you can't, but he does. You're right. You can't conceal that evidence if no, you come you across cannot. it. No, you cannot. And the rules tell you clearly that you've got to be upfront about that. And likewise, so, a good historian has to present whatever absolutely. comes absolutely. out. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing about uh, that I love about lawyering and also writing and, and, and working in history is that the rules of evidence in law are very important to how you assess things that are said about an historical event. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are, are these first-hand statements, are they statements made at the time the event took place? And we, you know, as well as I do, the rules of evidence speak of the rules of, best, of the best evidence. And the mm-hmm. best evidence, of course, is that which was done or said at the time uh, the event took place. Not ones that occurred or took place days, weeks, months later, because people have a tendency to ruminate over them and then come up with their own ideas about it. And I don't know how many times over the course of 41 years of lawyering, I've seen people ruminate on the witness stand uh, about things that occurred much, you know, many, many months, maybe years beforehand. So... To, to really assess whether or not what you're saying based upon a diary, a letter, a reminiscence, a memoir uh, is good or bad, you do use those same rules. You should, because it tells you a great deal about the, the, the veracity of the witness and the reliability of what is being said. And I'm thinking of the uh, the example of, of Joshua Chamberlain's accounts of this, the Appomattox surrender ceremony. Yeah, that he he wrote a series of them over his lifetime. Oh yeah, and and they evolve, and the right. later ones are are considerably different. <laughs> but 
it, it, you know, you, you can call it rumination or, or whatever. It, it's not that he was being dishonest necessarily, but no, the human no, mind no. works that way. No, it, it, the mind works that way. And it's mm-hmm. not that they're dishonest. No, it's not. It's that, you know, they need to be, like you do on the, as counsel, you remind the witness. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, this was so many years ago. Um, uh, this is what you said then, if you have, avail- if you have that available. Um, or, again, remind them that, you know, we're talking of so many years, and um, uh, could it be possible that you have forgotten something? Mm-hmm. Um, those things are important because people do forget. Uh, they do embellish, and they're not trying to be deceptive necessarily. Some are, but many are not. And so it's important to find out all those kind of facts to determine whether or not what is being said is reliable. And, of course, we can't do that with our historical witnesses, <laughs> but, no, but, but we you, apply the you, same what skepticism. What you can do, Jerry, is, is look at it and say, say a memoir written right. 30 years after the war. Uh, do you rely upon that? If, if, for instance, what is being said is contrary to something that may be said in a, in a post-action report. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to look at that and say, now wait a minute, is, can we rely on that? Mm-hmm. Because the post-action report was written two weeks after the battle, and this says something else. And um, in other words, not everything that you read is something you should grab hold of and say, wow, I've got... I've got the jewel. Uh, those things require some assessment. And, Absolutely. Um, but that's the value of lawyering. I mean, lawyering teaches you that. It, it does. It teaches a, a skepticism and a, a right. rigor to uh, examine the evidence in that fashion. And that's right. I've always thought my legal career has made me, uh, whatever level of historian I am, I, I wouldn't be there if I hadn't had that background. I agree. I'm sure that's true, Jerry. I'm sure that's true, because it does do that. We're going to take a short break now and come back, and I want to ask you about the thesis of this very interesting book and also talk about your uh, filmmaking and many other things. But we're going to take uh, a brief break. We'll come back, talk more with Kent Masterson-Brown. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. 
The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kent Masterson-Brown, author of Retreat from Gettysburg, Lee Logistics, and the Pennsylvania Campaign, and also the uh, principal of Witnessing History, uh, a, a filmmaking company. We talked a little bit in our first segment about the intersection of law and history. Both of us uh, have legal backgrounds. Uh, Mr. Brown is an active practitioner. I dabbled in it briefly. And uh, we're discussing how the the evidentiary rules of uh, the two disciplines have a lot in common. Um, one difference uh, that we pointed out is that the lawyer starts with uh, an answer and the historian starts with a question and sees where the evidence will take them. Um, and uh, to Mr. Brown, do you go by Kent? Is that uh, yes, Kent? Right, uh, uh, Kent. In in your book, Retreat from Gettysburg, which I uh, pulled from the library and read over the last several days and really enjoyed, uh, you make the argument, uh, as I said in the introduction, in, in short, that the Pennsylvania campaign of 1863 was not so much a Confederate defeat; it was a tactical. Uh, loss at Gettysburg, certainly, but Lee, sure. Lee's aim was to forage in the north, relieve Virginia uh, of its burden, and get the army fed, and get supplies, get animals, right. get crops, and he succeeded in getting back to Virginia with most of the loot intact, so it was really not a defeat at all. Did you start with that thesis, or did you No, come, I did not. No, how I did, did that not. come about? Um, I'll tell you, it, 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 here's uh, the long and short of it is this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I, um, I, 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 I decided to do a work on, on the retreat from Gettysburg, um, I mean, years back in the early 1980s. And um, uh, most of what I had thought about then was a discussion of simply the uh, strategic moves of Lee and the tactical operations along the retreat lines. Uh, uh, somewhere along the way, um, I began to run into information about Lee's uh, wagon trains. And these wagon trains seemed to be extensive. The size of them, I had no idea. And in the process, I was in communication with uh, probably our mutual friend, John Kosky, up at the mm-hmm. Museum of the Confederacy. 
John um, uh, had uh, provided me with a lot of information before, and uh, mostly about uh, cavalrymen, uh, infantrymen, diaries, letters, so forth, uh, discussing their, their, their role in the, ret- in the retreat operations. Uh, somewhere along the line, I think it was in the uh, early or mid-1990s, uh, John called me up in my office and told me he had just found um, a group of documents that he thought I might have an interest in. And he described them as being quartermaster records, mostly um, of the um, uh, uh, of AP Hills Corps, some of James Longstreet's. And these, these quartermaster records were, uh, and I asked him point blank, now what, what are they? And he said, well, I'll give you the title. The title is Items Purchased, Impressed, and Confiscated uh, While in Maryland and Pennsylvania, uh, June, July, 1863. And then he told me that they were enormous grids that along the top had the items or articles that the Army wanted. Down the left-hand column were the property owners where they acquired them. And then in the grids were the numbers of each of the articles. And then on the far right was the amount they were agreed to pay. And he says, would you like to see them? And I said, for heaven's sakes, yes. So he he copied them, and I, I mean, I literally went there uh, to Richmond and acquired and got them. Mm-hmm. And that began a process of me asking, what is Lee involved with in Maryland and Pennsylvania in this uh, in this operation? And then it, it, it again it began this kind of retrospective, okay, he's out there looking for all this stuff, most of it's food and mostly forage, and then articles, pens, paper, uh, hammers, nails, screwdrivers, you name it, Uh, but mostly um, forage, hay, oat, wheat, uh, uh, barley, etc., plus four horse wagons, six horse wagons, uh, horses, mules, whatever. And I said, what? he's obviously up there looking for something. And it began an entirely new vision for me of what he is doing up there. And again, to make it a long story short, after, after years of working at this, after I received those, I found that um, Lee's um, supply trains... Uh, leaving Gettysburg were altogether 56 miles long. And they were composed of quartermaster stores, which are artifacts, articles, uh, forage, etc. Commissary of subsistence stores, which are food for the men. And then, uh, and by the way, with the, with the quartermaster stores also came uh, horses and mules, with the commissary stores came cattle, sheep, hogs, etc. And, you know, ultimately I found that uh, Lee 
you know, brought out of Pennsylvania probably 30,000 head of cattle, 30,000 head of sheep, um, uh, countless uh, numbers of hogs, how they, how they uh, managed to get hogs across the Potomac <laughs> River is, I leave to your imagination, but they did, mm-hmm. uh, mostly in, uh, wagon, uh, in wagons. Um, plus uh, enormous amounts of items, everything from coal to iron, bar iron, sheet iron, because they were making uh, horseshoes, nails, um, all this kind of stuff. And now this whole campaign took on an entirely different aspect to me. And um, this is really the historian. I'm, I'm now completely out of the law thing. I don't start with anything and find something. I'm now being inundated with information that tells me this is something unlike I have ever imagined. And that's how it worked. And over the ensuing years, from the time John sent me those items, um, I began to develop the understanding of what Lee's Army was about. And I, in the in the acknowledgments at the front of the book, I always talk about John, because those um, those uh, quartermaster returns made an, an enormous difference in the way the manuscript came out. Well, John is definitely a real uh, pillar in the Civil War community. Oh, he I, is, I, and he took it upon himself oh, to call me about him. I mean, yeah. he he saw he 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 saw me in the library there, just slaving away at one diary after another. But then this came along, and he says, wait a minute, maybe Kent would like to see this. So I got a lot, I hand a lot to him. I'm, I'm very fond of him. He, he Originally, he was going to be the opening guest this uh, fall season because oh, the really? Confederate flag, which he's oh, the yeah. leading authority on, on the, the controversy over it. Yeah. Uh, but he, he's been interviewed so many times that he's been told he has to rest his voice by the doctors. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. so have to have him on later. Well, in in all the evidence you found, um, you know, Lee, of course, never outright told anyone, Jefferson Davis or anyone else, exactly what the strategic plan no. was. But no, no, and but, and, well, and rightfully so. Well, what? Well, but even after the war, he never comes out and says, well, I was there to forge, I was there to capture no, Philadelphia, no. you see. But what you found was that there's a great deal of foraging going on throughout the campaign, even uh, you know during the battle, after the battle. Exactly. They, they never were foraging 45 miles behind the lines during the fighting. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's quite persuasive that this was the... Uh, uh, one of the goals of, of the, the campaign. The other thing that, that I found really fascinating uh, about the book, as you, you just mentioned, 57 miles of, of wagon trains uh, split into two originally because right. it would be too long to go all at once, That's right. uh, going on parallel roads. The it, it raises the question that Abraham Lincoln raised, and, and I've uh, looked at this campaign probably more from the Lincoln side than the the Lee and Davis side, and Lincoln's view was, uh, you know, Meade could have closed his hand upon Lee and uh, ended the war in an afternoon, and as Lincoln put it in a letter he never sent, I'm immeasurably distressed because you didn't do that. Uh, 
famous letter that was but you make, you make a very good case uh, you make a very good case as to why uh, Meade didn't immediately pursue Lee. Could you talk yeah. about that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm writing the story of Meade right now. Okay. Um, I'm doing the uh, companion volume to the retreat uh, for mm-hmm. Chapel Hill, and it's uh, entitled George Gordon Meade and the Gettysburg Campaign. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it, that arose out of the work I did to write the retreat from Gettysburg. And Chapel Hill kept asking me, you know, did you, how, what, what did you do in that that, you know, we could write something else about the other side? And I said, well, you know, I compiled so much stuff on the Union Army that I could not use because mine was focused on Lee's operation. And what I needed for for that book was just enough to let the reader know why Lee was doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, you know, I've got all this material on George Meade, and uh, so that's what I'm writing right now. But the 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 sum and substance of this is that Meade, uh, I can tell you, uh, and this is contrary to so much literature out there, but I can tell you, Meade did everything a prudent commander must do to try to find and interdict the enemy. Uh, The problem with it is, is that a pursuing army uh, has definite impediments. Uh, The retreating army, particularly when it's using things like the South Mountain Range, using literally the weather rains, uh, which were torrential. That leads to swollen creeks, swollen streams, swollen rivers. Uh, Makes it difficult for the pursuer to pursue. And so what Meade does is that he finds a mechanism whereby he can intercept Lee, hopefully, by moving south to Frederick and then across Turner a pass and Fox's Gap, made famous in the 1862 campaigns, to try to approach Lee from that angle. The problem with it is, first of all, is that what I have found uh, is that George Meade, uh, prudently, when he entered into combat at Gettysburg, had taken all of his supply trains to Westminster. Uh, that's 25 miles to the rear of Gettysburg. When he retreated, all those supply trains then had to try to meet up with each of his seven Army Corps. Um, That took an enormous amount of of effort. Uh, Once they did meet up, uh, the horses and mules in in, in Meade's Army Corps, seven of them, had been so deficient in forage that between Gettysburg and Frederick, he lost more than 15,000 horses and mules. He could not even pull the guns up Turner Pass, he said to Quartermaster General Montgomery Miggs. I can't even pull the guns across Turner Pass because, one, they're so weak, and, and if I have any at all. So Meade is 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 beleaguered by lack of forage, weakened animals. 
it reminds you of George Patton's Third Army in Germany, um, just running out of gas. Here he's running out of mules and horses. And um, half of Meade's army, by the time they reach the trenches in front of Lee's army at Downsville, mm-hmm. uh, before Lee crosses the Potomac River, half of his army is barefoot. So, uh, and most of his men have not been fed because the supply trains never catch up with each of the seven corps. And his supply trains, by the way, coming across the Potomac River to begin the campaign were more than 50 miles in length. So he's got the same sort of issues, except he's trying to pursue an enemy through rain and mud and mountains and swollen streams. Um, and, of course, it's a, it's a, it is a difficult, almost impossible job. So as Meade manages to get in front of Lee, mm-hmm. but Lee escapes, and um, uh, and rightfully so. By the time Meade approaches Lee, Lee has entrenched his army. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trenches are more than nine miles long. They're elaborate trenches. Uh, Meade dares not attack them, although he tried to get his corps commanders to let him, and they would not. And um, not only would they have to go uphill into trenches and, 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 and heavy lunettes and gun emplacements, but to get there, they'd have to cross Marsh Creek down there, and that was up to your neck. It was so swollen. So um, none of these kind of facts have ever been really explored, and our friend Abraham Lincoln, born in my home state here, um, I mean, he and Henry Halleck admitted they really don't have any idea where everybody is out there. They're just disappointed. And um, it's great to be disappointed, but for George Meade's sake, this man did everything a human being could do to get his army to confront the enemy. What struck me as I was reading this was, uh, it reminded me of Martin Van Creveld's book, Supplying War, which came Mm -hmm. out in the 1970s and was really uh, groundbreaking in drawing attention of military historians away from tactics and operations to logistics. Yeah, and, right. Uh, you know, the, the, the saying in the military, amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. Correct. Uh, if, if you can't, uh, and here's Meade moving away from his supply base, lengthening the distance from his trains to go forward while Lee is actually going back closer He's to retreating his retreating on them. Trains retreating onto them. That's right. And and uh, you also point out Meade didn't know if Lee was actually retreating to Virginia or just going back to the passes in the That's right, to mountains. fortify the mountains. And then he could stay there indefinitely if, if that right. were Lee's plan. That's right. And most of, most of Meade's Corps commanders on July 5th believe that's exactly what Lee was doing. And Lee carried out the ruse. He had ever, all of his men light campfires along the base of the South Mountain Range so that when John Sedgwick, who is approaching Lee's rear, gets to Fairfield, he sees all these fires, even though there's sleet, not sleep, but rain coming down. He, and he, he sent a message to, to George Meade saying they're fortifying the mountains, which and, is exactly and, what all of his corps commanders believed and, Lee would do. 
it's what they thought would happen. That's and right. uh, uh, unfortunately, we have to take another short break. We're uh, moving rapidly through our hour here. But we are talking today <laughs> with Kent Masterson Brown, author of Retreat from Gettysburg, Lee, Logistics, and the Pennsylvania Campaign. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Kent Masterson-Brown, author of Retreat from Gettysburg, Lee Logistics, and the Pennsylvania Campaign. We ended our last segment talking a bit about uh, Kent's forthcoming book on uh, the same campaign from Meade's uh, side of of the fence. And uh, that raises the question, uh, how will this differ from other works on the same topic? I'm thinking of... Um, Eric Wittenberg's uh, book, uh, One Continuous Fight, uh, which looks at the, uh, the retreat in, in some detail. Uh, it, but in, you may have answered that in your suggestion that you, you see Meade as making the right decisions throughout That's this right. campaign. Yeah, uh, mine, uh, Jerry, is more on Meade's decisional uh, his decisions his mm-hmm. his his strategic decisions and his tactical decisions uh, it's not so much on all the little tactical operations they're mm-hmm. they're they're described but that's not what's important in the book the book the more important thing is george meade mm-hmm. and um uh it it covers also not just the retreat it's George Gordon Meade in the Gettysburg campaign 
So what it talks about is his operations from June 28, when he's named commander of the Army, mm-hmm. through the Battle of Gettysburg, and then his pursuit of Lee afterwards. And um, one of the aspects of this study I'm working on that I love the most is his establishment of the Pipe Creek defense lines. And um, what that meant in a strategic sense to the campaign and what it meant tactically on the battlefield. Um, I regard George Meade, I mean, I've grown much like in the retreat book where I got information that made me totally reevaluate Lee's campaign. Mm-hmm. I, in studying George Meade, I've gotten a very healthy respect for him. Uh, respect for him as a commander, as a tactician, but also as a strategist. And um, the Pipe Creek line is one of those things that I find to be totally fascinating. Um, and uh, its establishment on the night of June 30 and the morning of July 1 um, speaks volumes about Lee, about Meade's, um, one, his response to Lincoln's and Halleck's demands of him in the campaign, and that is to protect the city of Washington and Baltimore, but also his ability to uh, 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 understand his, the role of his army vis-a-vis this enemy that is stretched out possibly from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, all the way to York, and maybe as far as Carlisle. And what do you do to prepare your army, one, to protect those two cities, but also to be in a position to defeat those people in the event they move in a direction that, um, uh, that you can draw them into combat? And, of course, the, the establishment of that line winds up being a mechanism whereby Meade tries to draw the enemy into, into combat with him. And um, in the process of this, I have uncovered some really, really interesting information about John Reynolds, mm-hmm. a very close friend of George Meade's, but, mm-hmm. but who, who moves ahead on July 1, uh, totally without uh, understanding that he may be engaged in combat, uh, but he moves ahead beca- uh, with, the, with it in mind that he has already indicated to, John, to, to George Meade and Meade to him that in the event he encounters the enemy, he is to withdraw not to the heights uh, east of Gettysburg, Mm-hmm. but to Emmitsburg. Uh-huh. And it's interesting, Jerry, I, some years ago, a couple of years ago, working in the National Archives, I found an envelope. And the envelope read on the cover, contents taken from the pockets of Major General John F. Reynolds, July 1, 1863. Wow. And I found them in the 11th Corps papers. And they were mm-hmm. all the dispatches in his pockets and they were in the 11th Corps papers because the senior commander coming on the battlefield behind him was Oliver Otis Howard, right. commander of the 11th Corps, and they would have been given to him because he wanted to know what John Reynolds knew. 
And in those, in those documents was a handwritten letter from George Meade to John Reynolds. I mean, when the commander of the army writes a letter in longhand himself and not his secretary, mm-hmm. uh, you know he means it. Uh, very few of those are found. True. And when the commander of the left wing, which is John Reynolds, writes a letter back to the commander in his handwriting, you know he means it. Both of them acknowledge he's to fall back on Emmitsburg. Then I found from a collector in California an, a, a diary of a, uh, of, a, of a judge advocate in Doubleday's division of the First Corps. And he's with Doubleday on the battlefield when Doubleday learns of Reynolds' demise. And Doubleday turns to him in this, in this memoir, written less than a month after the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. That it was actually a letter uh, that he wrote to his brother. He, Doubleday turns to him and he says, Reynolds never told me what he wanted to do here. And he says, you know my position with this army. The only thing I can do is fight it out. Hmm. There's why the battle begins west of Gettysburg. And it's, it's, Reynolds is down. He's never had the opportunity to do what he had instructed Meade, and Meade had instructed him to do. He's gone. It's now up to, up to Abner Doubleday. Doubleday has no feel for what Reynolds understood at all, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so he decides to fight it out. Um, it, I, t- I find that kind of thing utterly fascinating. And, and um, uh, so there's some, you mentioned, hasn't this been done before? No, it has not. <laughs> no, it, it definitely not. And it sounds like this is going to be a, a good decade for George Gordon Meade. Uh, Tom Huntington's uh, uh, very entertaining book, Searching for George Gordon Meade, yeah, The Forgotten yeah. Victor of Gettysburg. Yeah. Uh, you know, at last, Meade is getting his due from some uh, uh, some important uh, work on, on his You know, his I've, campaign I've grown here. to absolutely love George Meade. I, I love his personality. He's mm-hmm. anything but the Google Idol snapping turtle everybody <laughs> wants to portray him to be. I'm sure as a commander, he was just that. Most mm-hmm. commanders are. But as a person, he is a very, very uh, delightful man. He writes his wife three times a week. And his letters are effusive and tender. And um, he, he has nothing but, to the very end, the total respect of Lee and his enemy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says it all the time. You, you've got, you just wind up liking this man so much. Um, but as a commander now, he is stern. He's tough. He is a snapping turtle. But um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a human being, he's a very, very interesting and kind of delightful guy. I, and I've also gotten to be uh, a great admirer of him as a commander. Um, he, uh, think of, think of this guy on June 28, taking command of the army of the Potomac. And literally two days later, he's locked in combat three days later in, in West of Gettysburg. And then, uh, in, in East of Gettysburg in the field South of Gettysburg for three days. 
And this guy has hardly been in a position to even understand the situation of each of his army corps. And yet he is able to uh, manage a, uh, a victory. Um, I like him a great deal. It, it, it sounds justified. Uh, yes. I think yes. it, I will look forward to that book very much. We have only a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you about uh, video, the, the Witnessing yes. History Project. Right. Uh, what is this, and, and what do you do, and how do you come to do it? <laughs> well, I, you know, I've given a lot of tours of battlefields before. I love to do that. I'm, mm-hmm. Matter of fact, on Tuesday morning, heading to Vicksburg, where I've got about uh, 30-some-odd people, I'm, I'm giving a tour of the Vicksburg campaign to... I love to do that, and I told a friend of mine once, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to do this uh, for 30 at a time, 40 at a time. And I, he said, why don't you make videos of it? And so uh, through various machinations, I was able to do that with a, uh, one on the Kentucky campaign and liked it, and the uh, regional public television loved it. They still broadcast it. And that got me into filmmaking. And um, I've made nine films. I'm working on my ninth right now. It'll be broadcast in November. And uh, one of the films I did is on the retreat from Gettysburg. So you can see it, you know, aerial shots of Lee's retreat lines and what have you. It's modeled after the book. Um, I've done one on the history of the first Confederate battle flag ever made. Mm-hmm. One on Henry Clay and the struggle for the Union, uh, one on the horse in the Civil War. Um, the one I'm working on now is on the uh, Lincoln family in Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, which has never been done. And um, uh, I finished one last year, uh, it was broadcast in May, on the life of Daniel Boone. I come from Lexington, Kentucky, and I grew up with Daniel Boone, I actually think. I mean, he, he's omnipresent as a child anyway mm-hmm. um, in this part of the world. And um, so, yeah, I, um, I do a lot of filmmaking. How does the, the medium differ from writing for you? Oh, it's extraordinarily different in the sense that, Jerry, in, to write, you've got to make sure the audience sees everything you say. Mm-hmm. So it's either a still, like a photograph, a painting, a portrait, or something, or it's footage. And you cannot tell the viewer anything unless it's a stand-up, and they're just looking at you talking to them. You can't say anything unless you've got a visual. So it is the art of applying words to images. And uh, in that sense, it is markedly different than writing a book. Mm. Well, it, 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 it sounds like a uh, uh, challenge. I know when I worked at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, we did uh, video presentations. And oh, yeah. The, Were the, you there the number, with Gerald McMurtry? Uh, I was not. I, he, uh, he left. Uh, he left. He i got to tell you, Jerry, I, the film I'm doing on the Lincolns in Kentucky now, hmm. uh, the artifacts that came out of the uh, uh, Lincoln National Life Foundation Museum up there at Fort Wayne are just remarkable. And we have almost every one pertinent to the Kentucky story in in the film. Excellent. The Indiana Uh, State Museum and the uh, Wayne County Public Library have control of all those. And uh, 
through both the good offices of both of them, we've acquired the license to use uh, all these images of uh, documents relating to Thomas Lincoln, his early years in Kentucky, Captain Abraham Lincoln. And they're all collected, frankly, originally by Gerald McMurtry and his friends, and um, who I knew. Ah. Uh, he and I both went to Center College. He came from Elizabethtown, and I knew him when I was a boy mm-hmm. and admired him a great deal. And um, But it's fun to use the stuff he put together. Yeah, well, it is. He put together a wonderful collection there. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I was Mark Neely's successor Mark Neely, there. Mark sure. Uh, sure. But the... Uh, the, the the museum sadly closed I think in two thousand eight. Yeah. But I'm delighted to know that the collection is, is oh. being used by someone like you. Well, to, the uh, Indiana State Museum is remarkable, and they're terrific people to work with, and they have all of this digitalized, and uh, they they were just Johnny on the spot for me. So, but well, it's coming out in November. Well, I'll look forward to that. I know our listeners will, too. And I know uh, if they haven't already read it, and I've already seen some favorable comments on the uh, Facebook page about it, if they have not read Retreat from Gettysburg, Lee Logistics and the Pennsylvania Campaign, uh, it's absolutely uh, something you can't say you understand the campaign if you haven't read it. And uh, we'll all look forward to your next book on uh, Meade's side of the campaign and it has been a great pleasure talking with you my pleasure jerry it's uh let's do it some more i'd I'd really enjoy that and listeners thank you all for listening to civil war talk radio thank you for embarking on a part of american history this week civil war talk radio with jerry prokopovich can be heard live every wednesday at 4 p.m pacific time 7 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel have a good week